Hello and welcome to episode 134 of the CogniCast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, host Timothy Baldridge talks with Nicola Memento about tools analyzer and macros and compilers and compiling macros. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. The Closure Exchange Conference is happening in London on December 4th and 5th. You can go on over to skillsmatter.com for all the details. There's also a number of Closure Bridge events coming up. Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. So there's going to be a Closure Bridge event in London on November 17th and 18th, and then another one in São Paulo, Brazil, hosted by our friends at Newbank. That's on December 8th and 9th. And then another one in San Francisco on December 15th and 16th at Circle CI. So go on over to closurebridge.org for all the details. Well, that's about it. So on to Timothy and Nicola in episode 134 of the CogniCast. Today is October 25th, 2017. I'm Timothy Baldridge, and this is the CogniCast. Today is my great pleasure to welcome Nicola Momento to the show. Welcome, Nicola. Hi. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. <laughs> awesome. So um, we'd like to ask our guests, uh, kind of as a way to break the ice, to give us an experience of art. Uh, we'll let you define art and you know, even what experience means, so it could be good or, or bad. Uh, what do you have for us today? Um, so I guess I'm going to talk about a very cool concert experience that I had this, at the start of this year. Um, I went to see King Crimson, a progressive rock band from, from the 70s. Um, and they don't do a, a, a many concerts, so it was quite a rare experience to see them. And after like two and a half hours of constantly playing, they played this uh, song called uh, Starless. Um, which is this massive 12 minutes song and they, they played an extended version that, that lasted about 17 minutes something crazy like that and um, it's a song that, that's very strange because it starts kind of smooth uh, very very calm very easy and then it, it gets to this middle section where essentially the two guitarists just start playing the same note over and over for, for about three minutes. And it's just this massive crescendo of, of sound uh, that gets really kind of frustrating. Like, you, there's a massive buildup of tension. And at this live show in particular, they, they had the lights start dimming and the whole stage started going crimson red as, as this crescendo kept, kept bending up. And they had this massive um, setup with three drummers. And after this, like, t- 10 minutes of of playing and those last three minutes of discretion of building up, they just 
the three drummers like exploded in this in, into this drum solo in, in three voices that was amazing and I was like left with with completely spe- speechless after that it was one of the most powerful uh, live experience that I ever had definitely that's fantastic um, yeah I I, uh, I always enjoy hearing new areas of um, uh, music where hmm. Uh, you know where they they play with the space differently. That's that's interesting. Yeah. I, I like that idea of playing with, um, in a way, how far can you get away with t- time? You know, playing the same note yeah. over and over. Yeah, uh, exactly. And turn um, that into there, art. There, there's even a an album by by an Italian musician back in the seventies where there's essentially forty minutes of him just playing the same notes over <laughs> and over again in different tempos, and it's 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 insane because he actually manages to make it quite interesting to listen to it's not boring at all that's fantastic that's great okay so um uh today uh for those of you who aren't familiar uh nicola has done a lot of work with uh in the closure space with uh compilers and and analyzers and that sort of thing so we're kind of gonna dive into that area of uh programming today uh but first of all i guess uh tell us a little bit about yourself so um you are uh in well, I guess in London now, right? But you're originally yes, from Italy. Yes, yeah. I'm from northern Italy, uh, called a uh, city called uh, Padua. It's um, quite near Venice, uh, like what I, what I used to describe to people who are not familiar with that city. Um, yeah, and I grew up there, and I've always lived there. And I just like two years ago, moved to London to to work essentially because in Italy there's not much um, interesting work. Yeah, it's a like, good point. Yeah, and you've been doing work in the closure space for uh, wow, for for quite a while. I guess what what got you started? Yeah, um, it was actually an accident. Um, so I I, I was kind of interested in in lisps in general. Uh, this is when I was in in high school, um, and I was reading a bunch of like the the classical common lisp books, you know, um, practical common lisp. Ansi common lisp and that kind of stuff, and I started reading on SICP, and that that kind of got me interested in like the whole broader family of uh, of lisps and and schemes. And I remember it was like I think back in 2010, um, middle of 2010, uh, Closure 1.2 just came out, and I kind of thought just by looking at it that it looked kind of funny um, because it was this list but it was also kind of java in some right. sense and i kind of I, I i made a bet with with some friends that i would actually use this language as a joke as completely as a joke <laughs> and then i actually started reading um the documentation and, and watching some of the early um Richie videos and and I thought to myself, wow, this actually is not a joke language at all. This this looks very interesting. Um, and so I stuck with it essentially. Um, I just haven't found a language that that just resonates with with me so much as as Closure does. Yeah, that that mirrors that that last part mirrors a lot of of my experience as well. I went from 
Oh, Python, C sharp, C bounced around to Erlang a little bit, right. and then eventually in Closure, it just kind of that's kind of where I stopped. Uh, you know, it's not a it's not a perfect language, but I can no, but in by, a lot of ways I can make it in, I can make it into a, a more yeah. perfect language right. than I can with others. Um, uh, that that's great. So yeah, actually, the funny thing is, I think you've actually been doing Closure work longer than I have. I think I got into <laughs> it about uh, one three somewhere in there. I think I remember reading at the time about the big. Uh, one three is when they split contrib yeah. out of Contra. core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, uh, and, and so the I came Matthew in like right well. after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I remember that that happened just as I got into Closure, so it was quite painful to to learn the Closure one or two way, and then immediately after, um, everything changed. Yeah, it did. It I, did. I think it was the, the biggest breaking change, probably the only breaking change that that Closure had since. Yeah, I think I think that's that's, that's pretty close uh, close to it. I mean, there's been a couple things uh, that have changed since then. Uh, the one I, I remember is in one six they changed the uh, hashing algorithm oh, yeah. in, in hash maps, and that broke a lot of code. But funny <laughs> thing was, it broke a lot of incorrect code, and that was the the important. But it broke thing. a lot of of wrong tests. I remember yes. that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. People were, you know, you, I'll I'll put this into a set and then compare it to a vector and make sure the order is <laughs> the same. And no, that that doesn't work. So uh, excellent. So um, a lot of the work you've done in the closure space, at least since I've known you, has been in uh, mm -hmm. with compilers. What got you into yeah. that aspect? Again, from that same period, I was going through all those old list books, and I've started. I remember reading um, Lisp in Small Pieces, mm -hmm. uh, which is a wonderful book that that goes over. Um, like seven or eight different ways of, of implementing interpreters and, and compilers in Lisp. Um, and it, it uses a scheme dialect for that. And I just remember starting to, to try and implement a bunch of, of interpreters in, in Clojure. And I, I don't know if you remember, but around the time where Tools Reader first came out, People were really asking for CNC, uh, closure and closure. Right. Uh, this is like 2012, 2013. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, I'm, I'm, I'm reading about implementing compilers in Lisp and, and people are asking for CNC and nobody's doing it. So it, it kind of stuck in my head that I wanted to try to, to do it. Um, also just to, to understand the language better. And Essentially, most of the libraries that I've worked on since have, have, have come out, out of that, that wheel, um, which is weird because now I, I have completely no interest in actually porting Clojure to Clojure completely. Uh, but that's, that's how I started, at least. Excellent. Yeah, I, I actually forgotten about that uh, push back then. I think, I think a lot of that momentum... Uh, not momentum. There really was really much momentum. A lot of it changed when Closure Script came out. Uh, we oh, yeah, had a, yeah. a Closure Script in essence is Closure and Closure. Uh, the parts that it doesn't do, VARs and the like, are uh, really hard to pull off in a bootstrap <laughs> environment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a hard thing to write in itself. Um, uh, excellent. So um, I guess we'll start with then. Um, so Tools, Tools Analyzer is probably the longest mm -hmm. running project uh, that you're, yeah. I guess, responsible yes, yeah. for in some ways. So uh, let's let's start with that, but let's also start with like, what is an analyzer and why do we need it? <laughs> right. So 
what what tools analyzer is uh, essentially it's um, it's a library that that takes closure code and emits um, NEST quite similar to what the closure script compiler does and this unintuitively to to some people that that think that an analyzer being essentially just the backend of of a compiler would be useful for they many people think that a backend for a for a compiler is just useful for for compilers um, but it turns out that a lot of very complex tooling or um, complex code transformation actually end up re-implementing that backend part of, of compilers. Um, so what Tools Analyzer tries to do is provide um, a generic interface and a generic way of, of analyzing code and, and outputting um, information about this code that can be used in a variety of different contexts. Um, so. So, some of the um, examples of this are um, Coracing, uh, for which we are uh, like the Coracing Go macro, mm -hmm. which we are mostly responsible for, and um, stuff like uh, type closure uh, uses the analyzer internally before doing um, type inference and, and applying its type system. Um, Eastwood is another project that's used by the community, and it's a it's a linter, and that also uses tools analyzer internally to actually figure out stuff about the code before um, emitting warnings or that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot more use than, than, than people think. And honestly, a lot more users than, than I originally thought. Um, would, would, you know, I, I, I had no idea that, that this library would actually end up being this useful. Um, yeah. Why don't I surprise? Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think the, um, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, structure interpretation of computer, computer programming. A lot of those yep. older Lisp texts um, are based off a scheme, which is simple enough that you can kind of get away without an analyzer. Um, right. But closure is, is a lot more complex and you can't just say, you know, um, plus X and Y. Uh, you don't, if you don't know what X is, is it a var? Is it a local? Is it an mm -hmm. argument? Uh, it can mean different things in different contexts. Uh, Right. And that's where that's where this helps yeah. out a lot. And ma many many people have this misconception that that Lisp is uh, its own AST, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of true in a sense, but it's also useless uh, because you know an AST that just represents itself without any additional metadata or contextual information is not that useful. Um, so that's what the tools analyzer AST provides over just plain code provides. Um, Information, meta information about this code, and um, yeah, the, it, it keeps track of, of the environment and the locals and stuff like that. Excellent. So uh, to, you have Tools Analyzer, and then there's there's Tools Analyzer JVM, which is, which is a separate mm -hmm. library. And I, I've seen some people right. get a little confused with the differences there. Yeah, um, and I understand the confusion because in order to to use one, you you, you like. You have to be able to use both, and so the, the knowledge is a bit um, is a bit scattered behind b between the two libraries. Um, but yeah, so the reason why there's two of them is because uh, when I started writing Tools Analyzer, I had uh, three three ideas in mind. Um, I wanted it to be uh, multi-phase, mm -hmm. 
um, and this is because from my experience of reading the, the closure compiler, there was just so much going on uh, at the same time that I had a lot of trouble trying to, to keep track of what type of analysis were being done. And so I, uh, in, in my own compiler, I wanted things to be completely separate. And uh, the second goal um, was to have a, a common AST format that, that could be used and, and could be um, traverse generically. Um, so another feature of, of tools analysis is that it provides this framework for um, scheduling phases and traversing the AST without actually any special knowledge of, of the AST that you're looking at. And finally, the third uh, objective, which is the reason why there's two libraries, was that I wanted to have uh, an analyzer that worked both with closure and with closure scripts. And so how that, that impacted the design of the library is that I created this tools analyzer library, which um, is responsible for parsing the host independent um, parts of, of the language. And then um, I, I wrote another two libraries, one called tools analyzer JVM, which you mentioned, and the other called tools analyzer JS, uh, which uh, is kind of abandonware now, but uh, the idea still stands, uh, which essentially provide uh, extension points for the host uh, dependent parts of, of uh, the analysis. So stuff like uh, analyzing def type or refi, which are completely different from, from closure script and, and to closure. Um, and so that's, that split allowed that to happen. And it's arguably the least important part of it now, um, looking, looking back at it, but still it, 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 um, it made it so that I had to really think about uh, what the extension point would be, and which in turns um, turns out to be quite useful for, for other applications. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so it sounds like, you know, the, the phases that we have here in, in the, the chain, if we were going to write a full, um, I guess, closure and closure in a sense, although maybe it can't bootstrap, uh, is, is to start with a reader, like tools reader, that goes yes. into the analyzer for your platform, so analyzer JVM, <laughs> and then what's the next step after that? Um, so it's kind of a tricky question because uh, usually after analysis there's um, code emission, mm -hmm. but I like to point out that that between reading and emission there's actually two different phases, and it's not just analyzing. Um, there's also macro expansion, which um, in the current analyzer and the current uh, closure compiler happen at the same time. But uh, logically, there should be two different things where macro expansion could happen before analysis um, and, and be completely separate. And that's something that I want to work on uh, in the future. And what, what are the benefits of that? Um, that's, that's quite a few different benefits. Um, being able to completely macro expand some code before um, analyzing it uh, means that, that you can use the same machinery for doing code-to-code -code transformation without actually passing uh, through the AST. Um, 
or even stuff like uh, Eastwood, right, which which has to look at the AST because the macro-expanded code gets lost uh, as analysis happens. Um, could benefit from from completely different stages um, of, of macro-expansion and analysis. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just, to me, it, it splitting them just makes sense in the the complexing way um, in that they're currently tied but they don't need to be mm -hmm. yeah and in fact uh, until we we discussed this you and I did a, a couple weeks ago I guess now mm -hmm. um, I hadn't actually thought of, of that aspect of it is that most of the compilers and stuff I've worked on just you know you you look at the form in the middle of analysis mm -hmm. if it's a macro you can expand it yeah. Um, but it's true, you, you have some what, bit of a loss of information there. There's no way of, um, well, it, it's this way in closure, right? If you want to see the macro expansion of a macro, you have to run it outside of the context of the compiler. And right. th yeah. there's slight differences. More more pronounced in macro expand all, where it, the output can be drastically different. In fact, oh, yeah. um, I'm trying to think back to the first version of the Go macro before we integrated Tools Analyzer. And I think mm -hmm. we ran into problems with that. We couldn't even use Macro Expand All because it, it had inconsistencies um, and ended up, you know, I ended up rolling my own in that macro. Right. And then now, yeah. of course, it uses Tools Analyzer, which handles that for us. But uh, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it like Macro Expand All is quite tricky because it works exactly like proper Macro Expansion would 90% of the time. But it's that those small edge cases where it just falls over, and you can't if you don't know about the the subtleties, you just you're left wondering why the hell macro expand all wouldn't actually macro expand everything. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, another goal would be to provide a correct and extensible version of macro expand all, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so so we're, we're talking fairly abstract here between two people that have worked on this. But uh, if I remember correctly, some of the, the problems were things like um, uh, if you have a macro in a global context and then you mm -hmm. shadow it within let yes, in the middle exactly. of the body of the macro, what what takes precedence? How does that work? You know, <laughs> or even shadowing, you know, something like do, uh, which is yeah, a special, special form. forms uh, that all that was kind of a, a mess. Uh, originally, um, yeah. So that, that's great. Uh, so, so there, you do have a library though, uh, tools emitter JVM, and I guess I guess yeah. that emits yeah. uh, JVM bytecode. Right. That's that's the next phase in in the in a compiler pipeline, um, going from AST into actual runnable code. Um, and so, tools emitter JVM goes from from the AST that tools analyzer produces, um, and it just emits. Uh, JPM bytecode. Um, the interesting part of that library is that before it actually goes from AST to bytecode, it it emits first a version of the bytecode that's symbolic um, um, as plain plain uh, closure data. And the idea behind that originally was that I wanted to run a separate phase mm -hmm. over the symbolic bytecode to do people optimizations or um, aggressing the lining or that kind of stuff that, that I didn't want to write as, as bytecode transformation. I wanted it to write as data transformations. Right. So that, that seemed like the natural way to go. Um, I never 
finish that part of the emitter just because I've run out of time. And, you know, after two and a half years of, of working on that project, I also kind of got bored. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, the, the premise is there. And if, if people want to experiment with that concept, then, then great. Um, so it sounds like yeah. for a certain subset of, of closure, then it is possible <clears throat> to go from a string of closure code in a string yep. form all the way down to uh, bytecode through these chain of libraries. Oh, yeah, yeah. Almost, I, I'd say 80% of Clojure is supported. The stuff that's not supported is uh, just bugs, essentially. Uh, but the implementation is, is, um, should be matching what, what the compilers of, of Clojure emitted three years ago. Um, so th there's no support for stuff like direct linking yet, right. but um, the code, the, the, the bytecode emitted should still work. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I guess the thing that that we should point out too is that this whole this whole tool chain then is is in a data format. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's hash maps and and data, mm -hmm. which is something that I haven't seen haven't seen a whole lot of uh, anywhere else. Um, yeah, I think I think. The ClojureScript compiler was one of the first to that's right. pick this particular ISD representation here. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, so it, the um, it sounds like too one of the reasons why Tools Analyzer for JavaScript never really progressed much farther mm -hmm. is, is that's kind of the way ClojureScript already is. It's already I mean it's yeah, a different exactly. AST, a different format, uh, slightly different here and there, but in general mm -hmm. it's. It's is it it's two phase right? It it kind of just analyzes yes. and doesn't do a lot of optimizations, but um, leverages that. And and ClojureScript has a, a slightly different concept of phases than Tools Analyzer has, but but I mean it, it's still symbolic AST and and running a phase essentially is just running a, a function over the root of the AST and, and letting it traverse. Right. So it's slightly different APIs, but the concept is is essentially the same. Yeah, yeah, and and, th and then what I love about that whole process is that because it's data, um, you can work with it w using any normal closure processing tools like you know multi methods or mm -hmm. or uh, yeah, yeah. Any, anything like that. And so it it becomes a very I, I remember some some code I've written that works on the ASTs. It's just a matter of implement a multi method, implement default <laughs> for de default yeah. for most nodes, and then all the nodes I care about, I specialize in the multi method and we're done. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's how it worked um, too. And actually it's funny because I, I don't know if you've ever looked at Mage from Renzi Nasser. Uh, yes, we had um, him on the, the um all right. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. podcast, yeah. I don't know what, six months ago or something? Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing that, yeah. Um and so like he, he he tweeted just just a couple of days ago um, about tools analyzer and a, a blog post that he wrote on on Mage, and on this blog post he he said that um, he couldn't find any documentation for the AST nodes, so what he did was just uh, exploring at Apple the AST nodes, and it turns out that there is some some documentation for the AST nodes, which um, I, I probably should highlight better, but. This just goes to tell that that you don't even really need to document it when when the when the AST is just data and it's self-describing and you can just inspect inspect it and, and, and look at it. Absolutely, yeah, that, and that's exactly what I've done in a lot of places. Is I'll implement an implementation of the multi-method, 
put something in there that throws an exception and prints out mm -hmm. all the available data at that node and then just look at it in the REPL for a little bit and then, you know, yep. change that multi-method to do what I want. But a lot of it is, you know, really um, uh, uh, self-describing, like you said. In, yeah. my, in my career, I hear people say, hey, the data is self-describing, and most of the time <laughs> it's not. But in this case, it actually is, you know. <laughs> so that's great. You know, one thing I'm kind of surprised with is a lot of compiler people I talk to, um, mm -hmm. after a while, find themselves more in a, uh, I don't know if it's if it's a matter of looking for more challenges or enjoying a good puzzle uh, or something along mm -hmm. those lines, but they, they start gravitating more towards type theory, typed compilers, mm. um, that yep. sort of thing. Um, have you done much work in that area, or is it just... Are you, are you um, like me and it just doesn't interest you a whole lot? Or <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done any particular amount of work in that area. But it's not something that completely doesn't interest me. It's just that I haven't had any free time to, to, to dig into it. Um, I've read bits and pieces of the Scala compiler, so I can appreciate how massively more complex that, that is than... than just writing a Lisp compiler, an untyped Lisp compiler. Um, but yeah, who knows? Um, may, maybe someday in the future. Um, yeah. there's, there's always this dream that, that people have of combining a A-type system with A-Lisp. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll give it a shot in, in a few years. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and if not, no, no complaints from me. But, uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I enjoy looking at the analyzer stuff because it, there's there's kind of you know two two views of uh, well in general all compilers are this way and you see it a lot in stuff like uh, Clang and LLVM where there's this trade off, mm -hmm. especially in JITs, but in any sort of language where you want compilation to happen somewhat quickly, there's a trade off of how much optimization are we willing to give away in exchange for faster mm -hmm. compilation and 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 as you mentioned. Yeah, the closure compiler is what ten thousand lines of Java code and, and something it, like that. It's, yeah. it, I mean, it's clear enough. It's not something anyone really enjoys working with, but it's really <laughs> fast. I, it's, I think, like two passes. It is, yep. um, and uh, there's very um, little, or it's, it's, yeah, yeah. There's kind of a parse phase, and then there's a emission phase. You know, that's that's about all there is. But uh, yes, yeah. uh, tools analyzer has the ability to do a lot more optimizations, of course, at the cost of. Uh, right and, and, and yeah, you, you you pay this expressiveness um, expressivity with with a cost in performance. Uh, there's no denying that that analyzing a, a piece of code with tools analyzer, um, it, it's going to be close to an order of magnitude slower than than with the closure compiler. But again, the, the goal is not to replace the closure compiler; um, it's just to provide aids for um, for libraries and, and tooling. Uh, so that 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 payoff is usually acceptable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's that's one of the reasons why I you know I don't think we'll see a, a rewrite of the Closure compiler anytime soon in in something like Closure or in any mm -hmm. format at all. Is is it's it's pretty fast for what it does. Yeah, um, and, and it's stable as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's true. Um, okay, so uh, at the Conj, which happened a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago, uh, you were there and did a talk on yes. uh, yeah. a new library, uh, mm -hmm. and it sounds pretty awesome to me. What, what is this library? <laughs> so 
it's a library called Tools Decompiler, uh, which, as this the name suggests, uh, is a decompiler for Clojure. Um, and it's kind of weird because usually, w w when I told some people that I was working on a decompiler, they kind of assumed that I meant a disassembler mm -hmm. um, for JVM bytecode. But that so so for the people who don't know the difference between a decompiler and a disassembler is that a disassembler. Um, takes machine code or bytecode and outputs a uh, very low-level um, representation of that bytecode. Mm -hmm. And DJVM actually provides out-of-the-box a, a disassembler called JavaP, uh, which, which just takes a class file and, and outputs a, a representation of that class as, um, as text. Um, what a decompiler is, uh, is a disassembler that rather than, than emitting assembly or, or bytecode, uh, it emits um, a, a representation of the input bytecode as a high-level um, programming um, source code. And what Tools Decompiler does that, that's kind of different from existing decompilers that it sets uh, itself the goal of trying to not only output high-level um, code in a high-level language um, which is closure, but it also tries to emit code that's as close as possible um, to the input um, code. Um, and to do so, it has to do some quite complex stuff to undo macro expansion and, and uh, function inlining and intrinsics uh, and that kind of stuff that, that the closure compiler does. Yeah, so I, I was surprised by that in your talk that that, you know, obviously... Uh, I was expecting to see a a basically fully macro expanded mm -hmm. code yep. where you know uh, I mean some things would be easy if the sec if mm -hmm. a leg of an if returns nil then you know you could turn that into when but but yours actually goes farther than that and does some analysis of of the um, decompiled code to find uh, common patterns that we know come from specific macros yes. and then replace yeah. that uh, with that uh, that's. That's fantastic. Yeah, and the reason why it's actually able to do this stuff is because of how the um, autogemsim uh, functionality works in Clojure, where if in... So we have this autogemsim um, machinery in syntax quote uh, to avoid what, what the schema um, call... Um, well, to, to essentially provide what the schema is called uh, hygiene. Mm-hmm. Um, to avoid uh, name capture. And how this works in, in Clojure is that it, when you have uh, a symbol um, that ends with a hash from within a syntax quote, that symbol will get uh, gensimmed. Uh, but luckily enough, it's going to get gensimmed with the same prefix as the symbol that you used. Uh, so this means that, that every macro uh, that, that the Clojure core implements has a, a very distinctive signature so we can we can kind of understand whether a local comes from an end expression or an if let expression for example even though they the micro expansion looks very similar uh, just by looking at the at the names of, of the locals mm -hmm. oh, that's fascinating uh, and so you can use that to tie it back to uh, a specific macro yeah and and the way it works is is kind of generic. So it, it you know 
I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Kibitz. Uh, it's another linter or foreclosure. Yes, as I am, but continue. Yeah. Uh. And <laughs> the way that, that linter works is just by looking at common patterns in code and suggesting you more idiomatic forms. Mm -hmm. And it works by using core logic uh, to to unification uh, from, from the patterns that I have defined in your code. Uh, but it's nowhere near as, as um, powerful as the compactor that I wrote. So I, I can't see the compactor machinery being used to extend Kibit and provide more uh, powerful uh, linting in, the, in that area as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess uh, it would be kind of like rubbing, uh, <laughs> yes, running Kibit uh, in, in reverse then. You're, you're looking for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I, I guess I guess or maybe not. You could actually just run it on the the code that you output, and then Kibit would suggest mm -hmm. you could do these things to improve your code, and you could take advantage exactly. of that. Uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I also wonder if there's some way of either leveraging spec or uh, if there if there's you know in, in a way what macros are is a is a transformation from one format to another. I wonder if there's a mm -hmm. way to somehow learn what the output <laughs> of a given macro is and and write the inverse uh given yeah i mean it's, then, it's not gonna be perfect but for a lot of macros and it, yeah it's, it's not even gonna be possible at all in the general sense but um yeah that that sounds like a very interesting problem and it's a problem that i originally wanted to solve but after realizing that how, how just how good simple pattern matching is i kind of gave up on, absolutely on the idea. Um, but yeah, to do that, I, I, I did some thinking around that, and, and the one of the hardest problems to solve before before being able to reason about macros in that way is um, trying to undo the read time expansion of syntax code itself, right? Because syntax quoted uh, expressions, like the ones that we use in macros, mm -hmm. um, gets expanded at read time into a, a huge amount of code that does list um, manipulation and, and, and concatenation and that kind of stuff. Right. And it's really hard to actually see the original pattern from, from that uh, bit of code. And so if somebody wanted to actually try and, and, and figure out the, uh, the reverse of, of a macro, first, he first should, um, should tackle this problem of, of reconstructing the original syntax code uh, expression from, from the expansion of it. Uh, it's true because a lot of macros do just use syntax coding uh, yeah. uh, of some sort underneath. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, and you know, it's interesting too. Uh, this sort of thing can be used as a as a teaching tool or a debugging tool to mm -hmm. some extent. I'm thinking, you know, the output of your program, what it would probably look like. Mm -hmm. I imagine if you ran it against a Go macro, um, is is. <laughs> actually good <laughs> and what it's you're gonna see is this huge amount of code uh, yeah. but that's you know what's funny is that's how um i started uh researching ways of implementing stuff like the go macro is that i had mm, done some work on c sharp and in c and other platforms too but in, in c sharp uh you have yield operators and async um, and mm -hmm. in, in the Visual Studio tooling, you can say, hey, decompile this code. And so if you compile the code to bytecode and say decompile, what you get is this gigantic mess of, of you know, uh, statements that mm -hmm. 
that looks a lot worse than just yield X, but then it shows yeah. you the mechanics of the generator and the state machine and how all that works. Um, and you know, same, you can do the same sort of thing with other, anything that implements, uh, yield as a, mm -hmm. as a state machine. Uh, so yeah, that, yeah. that's a, that's a, uh, be a good tool. Has a, this crazy idea about using the decompiler for doing some higher order, uh, metaprogramming. Mm -hmm. uh, so just, just piping the decompiler into the computation pipeline and, and running it over emitted code uh, until fits points, for example, uh, to try and figure out code that, that can compile and decompile to the same representation. And, you know, it, it kind of sounds crazy, but it, it could actually be useful for stuff like the Go macro, where um, the emission of the Go macro emits sometimes that code just because it's, it's so hard to track uh, which locals are ever going to be Yes. useful and so it just emits everything but because the decompiler uh, just works over references of, of um, locals that, that are never used it could actually be used to trim the <laughs> the emitted code before we actually compile it the, as, as the real version oh sure yeah uh, if there's some code that's unreachable <laughs> or something along those yeah. lines it, it would never it would never decompile it that, that's fascinating uh. <laughs> it's a terrible idea but but you know, it's possible. Well, yeah, but there's a lot of things that, that would be fun to implement there. The, uh, another one is you mentioned before inlining in the emitter level, but you could also do that at mm -hmm. the AST level with this, is that oh, yeah. um, you could look at a specific function call or a var, and if the var is marked static or whatever, um, and you don't have the source code for it, we'll go find it and decompile it and inline that. And uh, yep. you know, that that would be that would be a fun thing. I, I'd love to sit down and... and uh, and play with the decompiler sometime in the, in the near future and and try writing something crazy like that. But <laughs> Be my guests. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, and I have to mention, too, that my favorite part of the, the whole talk uh, was was where uh, you said at the end, uh, if you if you want to get the source code for this, you can go download a jar and have it decompile itself. <laughs> and then there you are. There's your source code, which, which is a fantastic yeah. way to re do the initial release. Uh, <laughs> the ultimate dog fooding, right? Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I figured I, I spent so much time just staring through bytecode that, that you should do it. <laughs> too. <laughs> That's right. Invite everyone else to join in the fun. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so, uh, you know, the tools decompiler is uh, we, we just came out. I guess what are what mm -hmm. are your? You mentioned something about macros and you know, um, uh, kind of uh, splitting out the macro phase mm -hmm. from the AST phase. What other projects do you have yeah. kicking around? Stuff you'd like to play with? Um, it's that that's mostly my focus for for the nearest future. I've I've been reading a bunch of. Um, Papers from from Rocket, the Rocket guys, and, and looking at how their um, macro system works, and I and I kind of I'm really interested in, in trying to port the parts that are compatible, the ideas that are compatible into the closure space, um, and it it all ties to with with uh, something that I've, I'm I'm not happy with uh, in the current state of of um, code analysis and transformation enclosure, um, which I, I, I want to try and, and build a library, a library to do um, code transformation at the code level. 
um, which um, I don't know if you remember, but Christoph Grant did a talk at, at um, the Closure Cons a few years ago presenting his library called S Jacket. Yes. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, about yeah, making macros better through a right, more, of, right. more of like a pattern matching and then um, syntax coding combination type thing. Yeah. And that's, that's essentially the idea that, that I want to explore with in, in the future with this macro stuff. Um, Enable stuff like what it showed um, while still allowing um, macro writers to have the full knowledge of, of the code that they're transforming. Um, which I think would be quite cool. Um, although, yeah, in, in, in the closure ecosystem, we don't really do that that much macrology as as people in the Rocket ecosystem do, but, but still, we, we do have a number of quite complex and quite useful macros, so, so having tools to aid in, in writing those, uh, I think, would be quite welcome. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I I hadn't thought about until we discussed this a few weeks ago. Was that mm-hmm. uh, when working on uh, business logic uh, projects, which is primarily what I do as a, a consultant, you know, at Cogitect, mm-hmm. um, I, I try to build systems in that way. You know, if if I can build a description of data in a declarative manner, mm-hmm. then not only can I um, write a parser for that, I can analyze that description, turn it around and write an emitter for that format. Um, I can write yeah. optimizers and combine multiple formats together to you know, transverse a given path once. And so a lot mm-hmm. of times I, uh, my work is involved in let's find, you know, because in these projects you get killed in the end by the complexity of the business rules. You know, the whole, yeah. uh, you know, we, we want this item to be this price except for on Tuesday and it's on this other <laughs> price, you know, and there's always these ifs. Um, and so the more you can encode in a declarative manner in a way the computer can can optimize and combine, the better. And I had never thought of doing that uh, at the, the code level, but that's really what you're talking mm-hmm. about is that is that because macros are opaque and we can't introspect them and analyze them and figure out what they are, um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's power in that. You could do crazy stuff like the Go macro, which you can't do as a pattern matcher. But right. um, yep. on the flip side, it's opaque, <laughs> at least to the yes. point of view yep. of the compiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it, it's really hard when when you're looking at the expanded code to figure out what comes from the macro and what comes from the user code. And that's often... Uh, a source of pain for both the macro writer and and users. Uh, so, finding a way to to lessen that that pain would be quite nice, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, spec attacks the problem of macro, mm-hmm. uh, you know, validation from the point of view of here we can tell you what this macro expects, and we can explain right. to you when it's wrong, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how. Uh, something corresponds to the output. Eh? You know, if if and and when. You know, the mm-hmm. the first argument of when becomes the the first argument of the if. The second one gets put in a do, and it's you know in the then branch of the if. That isn't right. expressed in any sort of uh, introspectable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. So, do you have any papers or or suggestions if people are interested in this of things to read or? Um. You mentioned racket, oh, I guess. Yeah, there's there's a couple of of quite cool papers from 
from the Rocket guys, and uh, one is called uh, Composable and Comparable Macros um, from Matthew Flett, I, I believe. Um, and the other is just essentially the... Um, I, I can't remember the title, but it's just the part two of, of that same paper. Um, and in this paper, they, they essentially describe how their their Rocket um, Macro Expander works and, and how they use um, this kind of this idea of, of staged um, compilation, stage evaluation um, to completely isolate the, the level between macro expansion and, and runtime, for example. And they describe this tower of, of languages that they build on top of each other, which have clear, like, com completely separated boundaries. Kind of, kind of similar how the ClojureScript compiler has a, the ClojureScript language has a very definite boundary between uh, macro expansion and, and runtime. Uh, they have that uh, in in a in a language with um, um, Brazilian compiler and 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 a refined uh, environment, which is quite cool. Um, Excellent. And they they go even a, a bit further than that, and they completely isolate these side effects from one stage to the other. I have no idea how they do it, but that's quite useful. Because in, in, in closure, sometimes you have the, the, the weird situation where you have side effects at, at macro expansion time, and so you cannot, can't assume anything um, as the environment changes well, while you, you, you think you're doing just code transformation, but, but you're not. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh something I've I've gone to discover over time is that closure at least on the JVM is very much this model where a um it's a very clear model a loading it a is, yeah. loading a file in is you read a form, analyze it, mm. emit it, eval it and you read the next and the yeah. next and the next and, and that's so, but the side effect of that is of course if if you don't have something that you can run the code with at the time of compilation, there's a lot of things that kind of break, and, and you see that in Closure Script that, that you have to write macros in a different file and in a different you know Closure versus Closure Script and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, so you see that the computational model is quite clear, and I want to argue that it's not completely as clear as it could be uh, because. I see people get tripped over these slight differences between compile time and load time. Um, yes, are, are almost always the same, but not not completely. So it would be nice to to have them to have a way of of separating them um, in closure as well. Yes, that um, is true. Where where you have a big, because technically the closure compiler does uh, analyze the form, emit it to bytecode. Write it, I assume, into memory in a byte array. Yeah. Read it yeah. in through the the dynamic class loader, and then run it. Mm -hmm. And so there is yes. that you know, uh, it's not immediately evaled. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and it's w w when you're just loading closure and and just in time compiling it, there's no difference at all. But the difference comes when you start putting AOT into the to the equation. Uh, and then you have load time and compile that them that are kind of separates, and yeah. this is when people see side effects happening when they're just compiling their closure code, and they don't understand why, uh, and it's because the two uh, the two steps are, are tied and there's no way of splitting them. Yeah, exactly. There's that problem of of the code running, 
when you AOT it, as well as the inverse, which I've seen, a, uh, I saw recently in a library where they had some plat- platform specific information in a macro. Mm-hmm. And so if you oh, yeah. AOT'd the code, it would say, <laughs> hey, this is ready to run on Linux with this CPU architecture and all this other stuff. And then you'd go and run it yeah. on a Mac and things would blow up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there's some languages that, that have workarounds for that, and they're all terrible. Um, Common Lisp has uh, Evolve When, which is this terrible, terrible special form where you can tell tell the compiler when to execute an instruction. Um, but it's really, really hard to, to, to get right. And it, even like seasoned Common Lispers often get this wrong. So I don't know, maybe, maybe it's good that, that we don't have that, that power uh, after all. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, definitely with the, the the escape hatch, but it, but you're right. There is there's a lot of different levels of of um, the evaluation process mm. that that the code walks through. And what, what I've found fascinating is, um, you know, don't start here. I don't encourage people to start here. But reading a lot of the um, code uh, mm-hmm. is is how I learned a lot of how that works. You know, it yeah. makes sense yeah. to me. Syntax coding now makes sense now that I've read a reader. <laughs> Uh, a couple times and 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 figured that out, but it is very complicated to understand. Um, I'm writing a macro, but the syntax quote is expanded at read time, right. and how does that yeah. differ from compile time? And, you know, and, yeah, that's true. I actually think it's it's you know it's it's something that I would actually suggest people to do: just write their own small Lisp interpreter if they don't want to write a compiler, and it, it it really doesn't take long to just just. Write an interpreter for the very for a very simple subset of Lisp that does that just does maybe um, integer addition or, or or lists or that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely! And I think you get a lot of value out of that exercise because you you it makes you clearly understand the boundaries of, of what each phase does. Um, yeah, definitely. And the nice thing is, is that enclosure you can even cheat. And I've done that a couple times. I said I'm going to write a you know a Lisp interpreter, but the input's a string, and I don't want to write a parser, so I'm going to use closures reader, which is <laughs> cheating in a little bit. Yeah. But but to some extent, you still have that distinction of boundaries of this function takes a string and returns a data structure, and you know mm-hmm. dealing with that. So it's uh, great. Yeah. So. Um, I guess uh, we're, we're towards the end of the uh, the podcast here, we, we like to ask mm-hmm. people for a piece of advice for either uh, Cognitect, <laughs> uh, the Cognicast, uh, or our listeners at large, the Closure community. Uh, what do you have for us? Um, I'm actually quite content with, with the community as is. Um, I guess what, what I'd like to see more from, from the Closure community um, uh, would be so- something that a lot of, of, of people ask for already, but um, just uh, a more cohesive uh, organization from, from the community, not necessarily from Cognitech itself. Um, on, on simple issues like, like, like um, proper way of, of uh, documenting stuff or um, um, editor agnostic uh, formatting rules or, or that kind of stuff. And, and it, it keeps feeling like um, there's a lot of people that are working on, on very similar things that do it in, in quite different ways. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'd love to see more um, 
cohesiveness and, and unity in, in, in those efforts. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, so. It's, it's something that's, uh, I think hard to mm -hmm. figure out a lot of times is in analyzing a piece of a library or a piece of tech is, is how much of, of what I don't like about this, um, my personal preference or an actual technical issue or something I can yeah. live with, you know, and, yeah. uh, that's, that's a hard thing to figure out sometimes. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and I think part of it too is, is sometimes things are easy, uh, seem easy. I think that's maybe the key mm -hmm. thing. Seem easy to reimplement. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't yeah. remember if tools analyzer existed when I wrote the go macro, but I remember when uh. I first wrote it thinking, <laughs> ah, how hard can an analyzer be? Surely, you know, <laughs> surely I can knock this out in an afternoon or, you know, a weekend. And, and I did, but then spent the next three months bug fixing all the inaccuracies in the analyzer, right. you know, and then just yeah. gave up eventually. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it's good to, and in some areas like that, we are pulling together on, well, an, the analyzer is one area, but there's mm -hmm. definitely other areas where we can work on yeah. more consistency. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, so anything anything else you would like to discuss before uh, we end the show off for today? Uh, anything you're excited about, mm -hmm. shout out you want to give about some cool tech or library you've seen or something? Um. I guess you know I, I mentioned it before, but Mage that that Ramsey is working on is one of the libraries that I'm most excited about. Um, the w what he's doing and with with bringing closure to um, Unity and the way that that he's um, exploiting the dynamic nature of of closure to. Um, Make this compiler an, an environment where um, you c you can actually compile closure to be as fast as um, manually written C sharp code, uh, and have it and have this uh, same REPL type of interaction um, while developing games. It's it's really really cool, I think. Um, and and personally, it's it's it, it's great to see that that. The, the vision that I had with with tools emitter um, years ago is is taking place so much better than than, than I could ever imagine uh, in with with the architectural decisions that that he made for mage um, so that that's something that I tell people to to keep an eye on if, if they're interested in game dev and, and closure absolutely yeah we kind of we kind of cover that in the podcast uh, but you know it's, it has that that combination of Need a needing the the higher performance and b mm -hmm. you know the, the .NET runtime or Mono whatever whatever you're running on there mm -hmm. um, has a lot more typing involved. Yeah. And so you have the ability to leverage uh, more primitive types and actually get down to you know vector opera operations mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So um, that's yeah, it, it's kind of the perfect storm of the need, the mm -hmm. ability on the platform, and then an approach, which is great. Right. I think it's going to be in, in, interesting to see how it evolves um, when SDJVM gets uh, value types. Uh, we, we're kind of going to have to... to well, m maybe we, we're not going to have to, but it's definitely something that we're going to want to uh, implement so, some of the optimization passes that 
that he's drawing to unroll um, primitives and, and that kind of stuff. So good to keep an eye on it for, for the future of the JML, JVM implementation as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing is well, we make it value types at some point in the JVM, but Clojure still needs to work with older versions of Java. So those sort of things right. almost have to be implemented at a an optimizer level um, mm -hmm. that can be turned on and off and that sort of thing. So yeah. th that will be interesting to see. I'm excited about that. I, I love I love the oh, puzzles yeah. of finding optimization. <laughs> Optimizations are fun. In a talk I did years ago, I, I explained that for me, um, writing a program is fun. Making the program run faster oh, yeah. is, is more fun. If I can make a compiler work, emit faster code, <laughs> then I make everybody's code faster. And that that's real fun. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a bug, right? It is, and then debugging and optimizing are some of the things that I like most about, about being a developer, so I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the uh, the call today. I've, uh, you know, yep. on, the, on, the on the podcast, I've wanted to talk to you for, for some time, and uh, mm. and glad finally all, all worked out. So um, uh, this has been great, yep. and uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye out on these projects and uh, hope to hear great things. Cool. Thanks. All right. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Nicola Memento. Nicola is at Bronsa, that's at sign B-R-O-N-S-A underbar on Twitter. I'm not sure how you pronounce underbar, but it's at B-R-O-N-S-A underbar for Twitter. And he's just plain old Bronsa, B-R-O-N-S-A, on GitHub. Our host today was Timothy Baldridge, who was at Tim Baldridge on Twitter. That's at T-I-M-B-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>